All right, and we are live. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM. I am uh, Darren Kaster, your host, live in studio. Uh, we actually have far more live warm bodies in the actual studio here than usual. Uh, not only do I have not one but two interviews for you today, but I have not one but two different interviews for you today, or interviewers for you as well today. Um, so that'll be uh, interesting. Um, Stefan is going to join us a little bit later in the program. First, we have the rare pleasure of actually having our occasional contributor uh, live in the studio for, I believe, the first or second time ever. She'll have to correct me. First time ever, uh, premiere, despite the fact that she's been volunteering for us uh, very appreciatedly uh, for several years now. Christina Henka is going to be interviewing uh, Sarah Sherman. Um, I'm going to actually just directly hand it right off to Christina right now to do that interview. Thank you, Darren. With me in the studio today is Sarah Sherman. Sarah is an actress. Her latest role has been in Peace River Country, which is currently being performed at the Tarragon Theatre in Toronto. The play is based on the real-life events surrounding Vibo Ludwig's fight against the oil and gas industry in Alberta in the 1990s and beyond. He was sent to prison for vandalizing and bombing gas wells. Vibo Ludwig died of cancer at his home in Alberta in 2011. Sarah, welcome to The Green Majority. Thanks. Hi. How do you feel about playing um, in this play? Um, I am loving playing in this play. We've been open for uh, five weeks now. We're just in our last weekend. Um, And yeah, my character in this play is named Jemima. We were talking about that a little bit before. My character doesn't exist in real life, although this story is loosely based on the real story of the Weibo Ludwig family. Um, There are only four actors on stage. They are mom, dad... Uh, the son Joe and my character's name is Jemima and it's been a real adventure. Um, I'm very sad there's only three performances left. What led you to playing this role? Like how did you find the role? Well I actually worked with the playwright. Um, Her name is Maria Milosevic and I was in a show that she wrote at the Tarragon. It was on two years ago called Abyss. Um, And it was also directed by Richard Rose, who's directing this piece as well. So I had a bit of an in there. Um, I found out later in the process, Maria told me um, that she had me in mind when she wrote the role of Jemima, which was such a... (laughs) An honor, and I know I I am very very humbled by that and grateful to her. Um, it's been just such an amazing opportunity. I feel like this play is right up my alley. Um, I have been involved myself with a lot of environmental activism. Um, I've I went to theater school. I'm a, I'm acting is my number one drive, my passion. Uh, but I've gone back to school in the last few years. I'm at York University for environmental studies right now, um, and I'm focusing on environment and culture and arts, community arts, that sort of thing. And so to be able to do a show that <laughs> allows me to take theater and environmental activism and put them into sort of one space is, is amazing. So how do you think theater can actually complement, um, let's say, the direct actions of protesters and demonstrators regarding environmental issues? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think there's lots of different ways of describing and defining theater. Um, I think a uh, a theater in a traditional space like this, in a, a small black box theater, um, is an opportunity to tell stories and to tell them in ways, like for example, this Ludwig story. Uh, there is already a documentary movie you can see. It's called Weibo's War, but this is not intended to be a documentary piece of theater. This is something that's about. It takes that story as inspiration, and then it becomes its own standalone piece of art. And it's 
an opportunity for people to sort of look at the family unit. It's a really close look. It's us around the table. And rather than focusing on oil and gas and the events that are happening to the family, it focuses in on how they, what happens to them, how they struggle against that and what that costs them uh, as a community. Um, so that's very interesting. I think art is a very powerful way for people to come and share in theater to share space and share breath and um, ideas with each other. Um, and for me, I get to inhabit someone, uh, someone's mind, someone's way of thinking. I get to just be and think in a way that I don't normally, and I get to inhabit that for hours every day. It's very, very cool. So even though your character... Jemima is an invented character. You're playing the daughter of Vibo Ludwig. Mm-hmm. Um, it does draw on real life, yes. right? Yep. What what happened to Vibo Ludwig's family? What set him off to take such drastic action against the oil and gas industry? Well, I think it's a long, it's a long, long saga. Um, but when they first moved out to the, it's near a town called Hythe. Um, it was very much their goal to get back to the land, um, as far as I understand it from, from the research I've done, to get back to the land and to, to sort of set themselves aside from society and, and the sort of sins that they saw there and to try to start their own thing, to live by their own values. They have very fundamental Christian values and they wanted to live by those values and sort of start their own sort of like homesteading out there. Um, and from what I understand, they had five years of a pretty ideal lifestyle. They worked very hard. Um, they built cabins, they farmed, they just, they wanted to get off the grid completely. And I think for five years, it was pretty peaceful and, and idyllic. And then oil and gas started moving in. Um, a well was uh, drilled just, I think, a kilometer from their property, right on the property line. Um, lots of oil and gas just moved into the area and people started getting sick, animals started getting sick. Um, and it was, it's a big issue out there for a lot of communities, not just this family, but I think after sort of persistent things happening to them, they decided to fight back. So in the play, as I think in real life too, actually personal things in the family start to happen, Mm -hmm. right? There's a baby that dies, a newborn. Can you tell us about that? Yes, that is. So my character, Jemima, um, has a baby that is stillborn. And in our play, we're suggesting that that's a result of being exposed to sour gas. Um, And the in the real story, there were stillbirths and miscarriages uh, on the farm um, as well. A lot of animals were aborting. They raised their own goats and sheep. And I know that there was a lot of issue with that. There were, hadn't been issues previously, but after um, some leaks and some spills, they were sort of attributing the problems with uh, miscarriages and stillbirths to the, the gas leaks. So as you were playing that character, you were obviously feeling very emotionally connected to what this person might have gone through, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's important for audiences to feel as well that, you know, this is not just political. This is, this is about our health. This is about life and death and tragedies. Yeah, I do. I think um, it's a very... I think, uncomfortable moment in the play after the scene where um, my character has just had her stillbirth and then her mother goes out to talk to the people at the wells and has this monologue where she asks, what if our children were your children? Um, You know, how how can you, why can't you look me in the eye? Um, And I think it's a very uncomfortable moment in the theater. And it was certainly an uncomfortable thing to watch a similar event happens in the documentary where... Um, Mammy, Weibo's wife, did go out 
to sort of just emote, express, to just rage um, at at these well workers who really, it, it they really can't do anything. They're they're workers. They're just these uncomfortable dudes standing around like, oh no, what is happening? Um, but it's just what what do you do when there's such a horrible thing happening? I think it's something I ask myself all the time. Like, how can I act? What can I do? And I I think this family and all of us are struggling with that. What have been the reactions of audiences? Uh, we had a talk back week, which I think is the best part of doing shows at Tarragon because they're so focused on on playwrights and development. So we have, you know, we get to talk to the audience after the show and, and hear their feedback. And it's been really interesting hearing the reaction, I think, to the religious um, aspects of the show. I think for some folks, it's I've heard people say that they were very uncomfortable with how much sort of like scripture is in the piece. I've heard other people say it was amazing to hear that scripture in the context of this play and to hear it in new ways and to hear different meanings and to, and to hear arguments made with the scripture. Um, I've also heard folks say that it, it's just like, (laughs) sorry. Um, I've lost my train of thought about the scriptures, but yeah, I've I've heard all sorts of of feedback from the audience who who sort of struggle with this idea of our beliefs and our values and faith and what it means to fight for your values and how far folks are willing to go to fight for their values. And we've I've had we've heard very strong reactions from people in the audience um, who really feel like actions were justified and others who feel like maybe they weren't justified. Yeah. Now, when you talk about the actions, you talk about Bibel Ludwig taking very drastic action, such yes. as uh, such as bombing pipeline equipment um, or vandalizing wells. In our play, we're suggesting that the family went and bombed um, some equipment, so like a, a maintenance shed, pipes, um, that sort of thing, not an actual pipe itself. Um, I know in the in the sort of real life events, there is suggestion that they were cementing wellheads. Um, and then there's also an event that happened in real life uh, where a young girl, um, her name is Carmen Willis, and she was shot on their property. Uh, and so that is in our play as well, a, a sort of similar event where some teenagers who came out in the middle of the night onto the property um, were sort of doing donuts in their trucks on the lawn, uh, whether or not they knew that there were girls sleeping in tents, some children camping out in tents, uh, not sure. But they came very close to hitting hitting the kids in the tent, and at some point someone in the family fired shots at the trucks, uh, and uh, one of the bullets ricocheted and hit a teenage girl, and she died. And so that is sort of a major turning point in our play as well for the family and how they are willing to write or rewrite their values in order to stick with this sort of vision or this this idea of what they need to do that is becoming more and more entrenched as the play progresses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can almost understand if someone's threatening your family, if you have stillborns, if if you see, you know, health issues, really severe health issues popping up, you can understand why people would become very desperate to try to stop whatever it is that they think um, is is making that happen. I can certainly empathize. And um, I think I understand the drive to want to do something to take action, but it's how far do we go? How far are we willing to go? And if we do cross a line, where is that line? And then how do we come back from that? Or do we? 
Um, I think that's an important question. And the cast, we had a, a great time talking about that in rehearsal too. Like, what do we consider? What do we feel is too far? What would we be willing to do? Um, what is terrorism and what counts as terrorism? And does bombing a pipeline, is that, should that automatically be considered terrorism? And we had, you know, strong debates about that. Um, I think something we we're pretty united on is that the death of a teenage girl is a pretty horrible thing. And that was a a real critical moment for us in the play and how the family um, addresses that or doesn't deal with that or avoids dealing with that. And it causes, in our show, it causes a lot of uh, inner turmoil and starts ripping the community apart from the inside. And you show that in the play, right? The family in the play is struggling with those tensions. Yes, absolutely. Um, Because these outside events are happening. We hear of these events happening. We hear of a flock of sheep that have died in a cloud of gas. We, We hear about the stillbirth. We don't see that on stage. We hear about lambs aborting, um, about wells, about tap water being lit on fire. But what we see on stage is actually more about the tragedy of the family and what happens to that family, um, what their original vision and what their goal was, and how they are forced to sort of rewrite rewrite their their values um, in order to stick to their to this vision of paradise that they have to create. Do you know if the family has been in touch with anyone at the Tarragon Theatre about the play? I don't know if the family has. I do know that um, David York, who uh, directed and produced the documentary We Bo's War, came and saw the show, as well as Brian, uh, Byron Christopher, who's um, a journalist who knows the family really well. So they're f- they've remained very closely in touch with the family, so I imagine they have a copy of the script and have heard about our production. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, tell us a little bit about your work as an actress and and your studies that you're currently undertaking and, and how you see your future evolving. Oh, geez. Well, I'm doing an undergrad now at York University for Environmental Studies. So I don't know. I haven't got it all figured out yet, but I just know that I absolutely love theater. I think it's an incredibly powerful um, medium for activism as well, for social and environmental justice activism. Um, I didn't really answer that fully before. I think theater can also come outside of the formal theater setting and be in the streets. Um, I'm really, really excited by protests that involves um, things like tactical frivolity and theater, I think, and humor and art. I think that's the, the best kind of protest. Um, Tell me more about that. Why, why do you think it's powerful? I think it can get past people's barriers. I think, I think we have I, I, ways that we see ourselves and see ourselves in relationship with others. And I think those can be very firm. I think we have like ideas of how things are. Um, we have hegemonic ideas of, of power, um, of our relationships, of, yeah, just what the way the world works. And art can get past that in a powerful way. I think art can sort of sneak in past those barriers and that experiencing a story um, can can maybe help help us to think and to imagine something outside of what we would normally imagine or think. It can sort of like get in between the cracks and open up space for different ways of thinking about things or different ways of understanding people. Yeah, it's easy to reach the ones who have been converted, who already believe that there is a problem with the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you reach those who feel like, no, we just have to, you know, rely on fossil fuels. We've got to Mm-hmm. you know, keep on doing what we're doing yeah. with our cars. And and I, I'm sure there are lots of folks who have come to see the play and will come to see the show. 
like people come from all walks of life and, and come and see this show. And I'm sure there are folks there who aren't as <laughs> convinced as I am that that capitalism is horrible <laughs> like, um, and that, you know, that there needs to be a major sort of reorganization of of, of how our society works, of, of, yeah, of how we live and in relationship with each other. But you can still come and see a show. And even if you disagree, and I know that there are things in the play folks might disagree with, and that's the best part, is that someone can come and see a show, take some, leave some, be maybe moved, maybe have some catharsis, or maybe have some really challenging, ambiguous sort of question left open, like, what do we do? And there's an argument at the end of the play, I won't give everything away, but there are arguments at the end of the play that just aren't resolved. And I know I've spoken to family and friends who've seen the show who are back and forth about okay, who's right? And this family falls apart and sort of split and fracture. Who is it? The son is his, is his idea of how we should move forward. Right. Is it the daughter, the dad, like how it, I don't have the answer, but I love that we can ask those sorts of questions through art and really dig into them. And I think maybe because it's, because it's an invented inspired by real life, but invented, it might feel a little safer to, to have those arguments with each other and, and debates with each other when we're talking about a piece of art we've just seen. Can you see this play being performed in Alberta? Hmm. I would be exciting. I would, I don't know if it will be. I would, I would like to, I, I think it would be really exciting. Um, yeah. W- would it be a different experience you think? I think so. I, I, for me, it would be terrifying knowing that people whose stories we've drawn from might come and see the show. That would, well, yeah, I would be backstage sweating. But I, I think it, I think the show raises some really important questions. Um, and I, I think it'd be great to, to go with it and to see what other folks, like if there were talkbacks after the show, that would be amazing. I would love that. I have a question about your study. So mm-hmm. as you're delving more into all these different issues, um, in environmental studies, um, or is it environmental science? Studies. Studies. Yep. Okay. Um, wh- where is it taking you? Um, so far, um, it's just been really neat. It's, it's sort of broadening my understanding of the modern environmental movement and the different foundational texts that that's based on the different challenges to the, to those foundations that are happening. I find that really exciting. Um, I have no idea how I'm going to like find a bridge for myself between theater performance and environmental activism, but that's what I'm looking for. And I know that I've had sort of experiences along the way um, with organizations that use theater for social change through improvisation, that sort of thing. Really? Can you tell me uh, something about I worked that? with a company called Mixed Company Theater for a long time. They travel, uh, they do a lot of work in schools or in communities where they'll, um, it's called Forum Theater. And so that uses a, a theater show in which the community that, that the show is in actually get involved in the show. And there's opportunities for for community members to interject in the drama when they see something they don't like and to come up on stage and to, to improvise with the actors and try to propose solutions for change. Um, I really like that kind of thing. Uh, like the sort of concepts from Paulo Freire, um, from Augusto Boal, those sort of, those are the sort of, um, bridges that I'm seeing between theater and activism now, but I, I think there's so much more as well. I think, um, taking theater into the streets is very exciting. And 
I like hearing and reading about those sorts of events. Yeah, so you feel it's important to bring more people on board, right? To to convince more people of how important it is to protect our environment and to tackle these issues. Yeah, I I don't know if it's Yeah, I I, I don't know if it's the job of art to convince as much as it is just to to ask questions and to open space f to discuss things and to consider things in different ways. All right, Sarah. So thank you so much for coming into the hey, studio today. Thank you. And um, I just wanted to tell our listeners that uh, tickets are still available. Um, the Tarragon Theatre in Toronto um, closes with this play, Peace River Country, on Sunday. But tickets are still available as of today, Friday. Thank you again, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Over to you, Darren. All right, and thank you, uh, Christina, and thank you, Sarah. Hopefully, one or both of you will stick around a little bit. We're going to have a, a little bit of a conversation uh, later uh, as well. Uh, Stefan is going to be on in a minute to talk to Peggy Sue from Peggy Sue Collections, who's a current Agent of Change member with a CSI program uh, that is gearing for solutions. Uh, so this will be very. This is a very solutions-based show. You may have noticed not only do we have two interviews, but there's uh, has been no mention of news yet. That is actually quite intentional. There may be some news a little bit later, but we're sort of focusing on. Uh, solutions and people working on them uh, today. So without uh, further delay, however, we're going to go to our music break and I will pass the microphone over to one of my uh, other texts this week. Megan, what are we going to listen to? All right, and we're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Darren Kaster. Uh, we have a multitude of interviews today, uh, all solutions-based. Steve, uh, Steve, why am I saying Stephen? Stephen is the tech who I'm being right now. Um, so not Stephen is going to pass over to now our actual Stefan, uh, who's going to uh, be interview doing this interview section. As I said, very solutions-based show. Uh, I'm going to take host's privilege. I can't resist making an extremely quick comment about the last section before I pass to Stefan, which was simply in this conversation about pipelines um you know the, we were looking at this thing where uh they're they're trying to there were some laws in the and some of these laws that were being passed about trying to prevent people from even protesting pipelines like that like even protesting a pipeline was some sort of terroristic act and i can't as you were speaking i just can't uh help but thinking like if it's so terrifyingly dangerous to canadians like the future of the country if if even a pipeline is protested much less bombed maybe don't build them um i don't know just Mike, I had to say it. Stefan, I'm going to pass to you. More solutions. I'll keep my sarcasm for the end yeah. of the show. Okay. Uh, a vast movement away from bombing pipelines. Um, I am uh, I am in the studio uh, joined by uh, Peggy Sue Smiltniks. Yes, nailed it. Um, uh, who is the, uh, the owner uh, and founder of Peggy Sue Collections, which is a which is a I was going to say an eco fashion brand, but I think that's not actually how you define it. So, yeah. uh, can you just ex give us a, give our listeners a short explanation of how you sort of uh, how you see the brand uh, and 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 what you do? Absolutely, uh, it's really a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, just to yeah, Peggy Sue Collection. We are a fashion forward company. The idea is that we will always have our garments going down runways and in really beautiful editorials in the high fashion magazines. But what we want people to see when they look at the line is, I love that. It's so beautiful. It's true luxury. Oh, and it's local, sustainable, and ethical uh, because everyone in our supply chain is accounted for and named. 
Amazing. Um, yeah, so it's funny, it's, it's funny that you actually just – right before the, you got on the show, you actually explained to me this idea of fashion forward versus uh, all the other ways of forward one can be. Um, and and you, you just had actually your show – you actually were just on Runway uh, mm-hmm. at, at Women's Fashion Week uh, yes. last Sunday. Um, and what you did at the end of it was actually one of my favorite things. That I didn't actually know that what, who the people all sort of were. So just to set the scene, uh, you know, this is like a gaudy fashion show uh, in all the ways you presume – Actually, glamorous. Glamorous. For. Glamorous, glamorous is a word. Amazing. Um, actually, it's funny. Is I was the person I was with described it as this looks exactly like the how the movies make you think it looks like. Um, and so. Uh, and then, and then, so you sort of, you know, there was the whole runway, which sort of was exactly what it was. And then at the end of the runway, a whole bunch of people who just like, and this is going to sound odd, but normal looking people showed up. Um, and, and, and I sort of saw them and I was, I figured they were some way that they were some way, uh, connected. Uh, but that only later did I discover that that was actually your entire supply chain, uh, sort of following behind you. Um, and, and, and I've always known you've been sort of obsessed with the supply chain, but why do, why does supply chain matter so much to you? Absolutely. Well, just to quickly note, the supply chain individuals that were there with me on the runway were the, the local uh, makers. Mm-hmm. So the, uh, the farmers, unfortunately, weren't able to make it because they're from the states, California, North Carolina, and Texas. Um, but they were live watching it. Um, <laughs> yes. So it's a, it was a portion, a very important portion of our supply chain. Uh, but Oftentimes in a fashion company, uh, the designer is the only one who gets to come down the runway after the collection has shown. And for me, it really is a collaboration of minds and talents. I couldn't make that collection without those farmers and their fiber um, or the weavers or the mills. I mean, it certainly wouldn't be the same. That's for certain. Um, So it's. I really wanted to myth bust it to say, no, no, it takes significantly more people and it takes a community. And, and really, that's what this company is, is it's a community. It represents people coming together to make change. That's something you can wear on your body every day. Yeah. And you did myth busting. Uh, and so to put you on the spot here, uh, which is obviously the fashion industry is, is one that you know, is I'm going to say inaccessible to many. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, at least I personally have no idea what I'm doing. Um, and so, uh, what is uh, you must come across a bunch of myths all the time. Because I remember when you sort of first joined us um, through the you know, the Angel Change program, and so you came and sort of explained us. The first thing that that you showed us was actually a, a cotton ball. Yes. Um, and and and, and it, just basically to be like, look, cotton grows on plants. Right. Um, and uh, in it, colors. And, yeah, and in colors, exactly. Um, and, and so I was wondering, like, what do you find is the, so the greatest myth that you sort of find yourself keep butting your head up against that you're, you're sort of, sort of you're fighting? Yes. Um, well, it really is interesting to get people to connect to the fact that these natural fibers are natural, meaning they have a growing season. They can be disrupted by natural disasters, weather, climate change. Um, and, and it really is, um, it's not, we, we're so disconnected from it. We don't have to be. It's we align very closely to the slow food movement. All of those considerations you take when eating seasonally and slowly um, are also the same ones that you could take into consideration when purchasing fashion. There aren't too many options out there in the market right now that support it. However, because of this greater awareness and because of these individuals who don't consider themselves to be a part of the fashion industry are starting to ask these questions and make these demands, it's exciting to see that houses, as well as newer labels like myself, are being given this platform, this opportunity to really um, offer this that hasn't yet been 
um, readily available. Yeah, and you mentioned the, the sort of large, you know, the large fashion industry. Uh, the, 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 the sort of, uh, I'm sure, it sort of feels like a monolith, uh, despite the fact that I'm sure there, you know, there are always these little pieces of everything. Um, and 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 what's interesting is that when we were talking outside, you, the, the, when you did explain to me this idea of being a, what of being a fashion forward company means, uh, I, I feel like it speaks to the. Uh, the way you see disrupting an industry yes, uh, and the way that uh, you sort of feel like you have to go about this for you to be even successful uh, as, you know, either first and foremost as a company itself, but then as sort of building a sustainable movement. Um, so can you sort of tell our listeners sort of how you like wh- how you are sort of going about this very large task of trying to disrupt what is a, you know, tr- billions and billions of dollars sure. industry? Well, I mean, like we were speaking about just before going on air. A lot of the constructs of industry are such that um, mission-forward companies have not been able to fulfill those missions. They are profit, profit um, bottom line driven. So these fashion monoliths have really not been able to make such changes. Um, and so it's exciting that there are those opportunities. Um, and and I have to say I've been pretty pretty excited by how um, open a lot of those brands um, and very established fashion individuals have been to saying, oh, okay, like we see this new demand coming. We see that your company is really putting that forward. However, to play in this arena, you have to be um, you have to be edgy. You have to be forward. You have to still be beautiful and you have to fit well and be reproducible um, on a production standpoint. And and those demands aren't going to go away per se, but they are shifting. And and I've found in my company there's just there's just no use in offending anyone and alienating them from the table because for so long that's how the general consumer felt from the fashion industry, alienated and unwelcomed to the table. So there's just no win in doing it the other way around when in fact this could be something that unites all of us. We all wear clothing every single day. Why not take it as an opportunity to connect with one another on a deeper, intimate level? Yeah, and, and and you find yourself. I feel like you find yourself bumping up uh, against a very particular problem, um, or at least sort of as I've watched it. Because as someone who is not in the fashion industry, mm-hmm. uh, I when I'm going out to buy clothes, uh, which is relatively rare. Um, uh, I, I'm I, like I'm and never will be your target market currently. That's uh, in not part, quite true. Okay, 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 we deal with that quite a bit. I'm interested. Yeah. Um, so, so okay. So let's start there. Uh, how how do you deal with me? So y- your type is almost our secondary bread and butter customer. We have those early adopters who, yes, I want a meaningful piece. This is change. I want it early adopter. Um, but then. Our real squeeze is those who think, oh, I don't have anything to do with fashion, but yeah, I'll care about food and I'll care about sustainability in the energy sector and so on and so forth and waste. Um, We really tie into their moral compasses. A lot of people who shop with me will buy a piece and invest and then they'll buy secondhand and they'll buy. I mean, there's so much secondhand available. That's really beautiful quality stuff. So we actually mesh really well with the non-fashion fashion consumer because they're not there for the fashion. They're there for the for the human connection, for the fact that they're. You know if, that this ties into their personal interests in industry, right? Um, and then, 
So that makes a lot of sense. But then to, to move forward, was, you mentioned they'll buy a piece from you and then they'll go secondhand. Mm-hmm. I think speaks in some ways to the extent that one of the perhaps the biggest challenges I imagine you, you must face is the fact that you being both fashion forward with a mission means that your price point has to match that. Yes. Uh, and so you can be you can be incredibly sustainable, uh, but diff- but still sort of inaccessible to a to a large percentage of the of the audience. Um, and now of course that is you know is in part because you're small and then there's a, there's a scaling piece there uh, but sort of how do you how do you sort of manage those sort of different pieces of it uh, or how do you sort of see your transition maybe to being a larger uh, yeah. force in the market so one one of the few uh, uh, schemes we use for that price point differentiation yes we'll always have those crazy runway pieces that are you know, thousands of bucks um, but that's a different market that's a red carpet one of a kind blah 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 um, but what we did this season was we created um, you know beautiful organic fiber graphic t-shirts and accessories we always have um, a large amount of accessories so that you can get those textiles and they're sizeless and they're easily repeatable because that's Oftentimes, someone who doesn't buy a ton of fashion will have their staples and then can accessorize it with these really special pieces. And it's very helpful to be able to have that to offer to customers who, you know, don't have that sort of price point luxury. And as we're growing this fiber supply chain, which is, you know, small and dedicated at the moment, but as it's growing, it's helpful that the demand is slow and very intentional because it's telling us where we need to go with our development. I mean, it's it's really um, slow fashion movement. That's what we're all about. Um, doesn't sound very sexy, but <laughs> that's um, it, like the slow food movement. Right. Tell us what you want, and we'll grow to it. Right. Um, so, so touchy. Tell, so we've you know the the fun of being on radio talking about fashion uh, is that no one gets to see anything. Um, <laughs> so perhaps uh, take me uh, um, take me through uh, when we first uh, one of the first times we met. Uh, you had a you, brought, you I made a joke about whether you were wearing your fat favorite piece, and you were like, "No, I'm saving that for later." Yes. Uh, and then on the sort of the launch of the Indian Exchange, you wore this jacket. Yes. Um, and so, can you take us actually through the supply chain of how you make that say this particular jacket. Sure. Uh, also, maybe explain the jacket because sure. you can do a better job than I. Sure. Can. No worries. Um, it's a coat. It's a drape coat. Uh, it's below the knee, a line in shape, and it can be worn quite a few ways. It's a very easy to wear piece, which I love. You can wear a dress under it, and it's very fancy. You can wear your jeans with it and sneakers even, and it can be really fun knocking around town in it. Um, so it's really versatile and it's really figure friendly, which. You know, women have curves. That's actually my biggest customer base is curvy women um, and broad shoulders. Um, we have a lot of yoga biceps running around. <laughs> so what I love about that piece is that it's really quite special. The textile used for it is upcycled denim that we break down from pairs of jeans that we collect that are used beyond repair. Denim we receive that can be mended, we mend and we put it back on the market. But denim that's just, there's no more to it, which it is the staple that we wear most often that as cotton prices are rising and the poly contents are getting higher in jeans, they wear through a lot quicker. So we're seeing a lot more waste in the denim sector. It's, It's 
it's absurd how much of that goes to waste a year. So we thought, let's take it, let's break it down, we slit cut it, and then our, this incredible weaver, Deborah Livingston Lowe of Upper Canada Weaving in Toronto, reweaves it into this brand new textile using our organic cottons for detail and ornamenting. And so we take these panels and we shape them into what was, you saw, this coat. And um, it was the very first iteration that we ever did. So we clearly revisited it for the runway. And uh, because it was such a loved piece, um, we sort of reinvented it. But it was exciting to, instead of talk about textiles from Canada that were new, to talk about upcycled would-be waste textiles that Canada generates. Right. And so you, you take what this is, uh, this upcycled stuff, which obviously has like a – maybe a um – a global originality, but it has become sort of a local sort of source for you right. as you keep going back and forth and using it again and again. Yeah. Um, and you combine it with with cotton from uh, from North America. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yes. Um, for the warps, we need to put it up on something. Yes. Right. Um, and and then yeah, and then you sort of create these these pieces of all uh, of all. I remember when when we when you first described your company, you didn't describe your company as an eco fashion brand. You described it as something that was trying to revitalize the North American fabric industry. Is that yes. right? The fiber landscape. The fiber yes. um, uh, Can you talk a little bit about? So, what does that look like? Well, everyone always talks about let's bring things back to North America. Let's onshore them, and that's that's great. But there's a lot behind that. It's not as simple as yes, we're going to start those machines again. We don't have those machines. Period. We sold them ages ago. And then the people who bought them evolved them. So we're that far behind. And we no longer have the training to operate those types of machines. Um, so it's, it's a huge level of catch up. So what we do is, as we, when we first look out into the landscape, we're not like a traditional fashion house, we don't get to say, I love these designs, we're making this, let's go find fabric. We go, okay, these systems exist, these are the materials we have, what the heck can we make out of these that's fashion forward, that people can wear, that we can reproduce, da, da, da. And then once we establish those norms, we take that and then we move forward. Once we've established the baseline, then we can grow it. We can make the yarn more consistent and even. We can make the blends uh, more repeatable. We can make those fabrics more cloth-like and so on and so forth. So there's a huge amount of retraining um, as well as from the biodiversity side. Once we've established the security with a farmer, yes, we will constantly use ev- you know every pound of your fiber regardless of its um, quality or grade, then they can say, okay, I'm going to now add this breed or I'm going to um, expand in this way with better farming practices and perhaps I'll think about going organic. And uh, going organic takes about three years and a lot of money for that transition, but you need to have a dedicated source of income. And so we're looking at change from an industry sector of financial pull through. And so far it's been very exciting to really make significant change in the financial livelihood of the people in our supply chain. Amazing. Um, so uh, I know we're coming up to the next music break. So if you can just give uh, our listeners a chance to where they can find uh, more about you, more about your collection, everything else. Uh, we all are coming back. Uh, so you can, you can hear more Peggy Sue in the, in the last section of the show. We're going to do a bit more of a roundtable. But uh, to give you a chance to sort of let people know where they can find all things you. Ah, sure. So our our website is the easiest way to then stem off from there. It is www.peggysuecollection.com. And please, our social media, that is really, we'll let you know everything that's going on. And um, send us an email. We're uh, a community that's really excited to connect with people. So we're not, we're not that far. 
pretty direct. <laughs> I was I was going to make a joke that uh, that you're so into old things, I might want to send you snail mail, but you know, right? No, except you might not get it. <laughs> uh, that's true. Yeah, exactly. You're, you're out. Of, you're you're not in the city, and therefore it's. Uh, I am not. I have to go and commute up to the farmers as much as I have to commute down to the city sometimes more. Well, there you go. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'm going to throw it back to someone in the booth. I'm not sure who, who's going to take it, but someone in the booth, take it away. I, uh, I didn't want to interrupt you, Stefan, but I just need to take a moment out of the show to boo your joke. Uh, boo. Well, seems unnecessary. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, so what's going to happen in the last section? I just made this up now. That's how this show rolls. We, we do a lot of stuff on the fly here, and I kind of like it that way. So here's what's going to happen. I have four people in the studio. I have four questions. Each question has been inspired by one of our guests, but it's not going to be directed to that guest. What I'm going to do is it's like a, like a, a, a battle race or something like that. I'm going to throw something into the middle of the studio as I bang the mic stand here. To that related and sound whoever like wants, a, whoever a feels. Boom, no. Whoever feels inspired to pick up the question will do so. That's going to come up after the break. Uh, right now, first and foremost, though, I'm going to go to Kai, my other assistant tech, who will tell us what our second and final music break will be. All right. Since we've been talking about locally grown and locally sourced stuff, um, going to carry that on to the music break. Uh, this is Cold Specs. She's from Toronto, and the song is Elephant Head. All right, we are back. Thank you for the nice music uh, picks to my uh, assistants today. Is that, am I allowed to call you assistants? I think so. They're, I'm getting shrugs. I'm not in trouble, at least, for calling them assistants. Uh, thank you very much to Megan and to Kai for assistance today. Uh, so here's what's going to happen now. I have four questions inspired one more or less by each of our guests today. Uh, but I'm not going to direct it at anyone. Whoever, whoever feels so inspired may do so. Um, but I will tell you, um, only one of them has to do with Trump. Oh, wow. Yeah. Thank you for that. You're welcome. We're trying to minimize Trump, but of course we we don't want to seem like we're not paying attention. But it's more more general. So I won't won't start with that one. Um, This is going to be very obvious who this question was inspired by. So what I was thinking about was um, this idea that now in this – fact where there's sort of there's such an information download we have a number of companies that are that are pursuing it more and more companies are pursuing this ethical um sort of status larger companies are picking it up at a bit of a slower pace but they're marketing it more so the average consumer sees sort of green stuff everywhere um but of course a lot of the trick with that is that the only only a portion of their customers really actually understand these issues right so if we're doing with uh, uh low impact dyes for instance with all the, the there's that documentary about the denim mm-hmm. and the blue yeah. only they the only a small percentage of the company uh, of people actually understand that problem so when you say i have a you know dye free or an environmentally safe dye only a small portion of people. So I wanted to sort of just, it's not even really a question so much as a comment on really, which is that, you know, do we see a future where, you know, corporations themselves are, are, are putting out educational materials about environmental issues to then make people understand why they're, they're, they're they should buy this particular product? Because in a lot of cases, they'd be like, well, why, why would they do that if nobody knows about it? Well, because in a lot of cases, these environmental things are also beneficial for the company. So mm-hmm. do we, do we see that at all? Is, is our company is going to take a larger portion of educating people about the environment because it's self-serving. Uh, I actually want you to tell a story about Patagonia, Peggy Sue. Uh, we are also talking about it and sort of what um, what some large companies are doing uh, to to actually change markets. Yes. Um, so yes, as we were talking earlier, um, Patagonia really by being a B Corp, by taking on some of these big fights that these smaller brands like myself can't afford to fight, um, they really are. Educating the public, yes, it's not their main customer base. Well, with Patagonia, maybe. <laughs> um, <laughs> however, it's 
it's helping to set them apart and differentiate them in an industry that they, from a um, from a smart standpoint, know it's giving hugely to their market share. But with Patagonia, what they're doing is they're actually creating a huge amount of brand loyalty um, and, a, and a good following that's, that's allowing for progress within the industry that would not have otherwise been possible. I cannot go to court and fight those big fights. I can't afford to. Um, I would get buried. Whereas Patagonia is setting a good deal of precedent in fighting those fights so that uh, being a B Corp is something that is an achievable um, option for a lot of the smaller companies. And yes, I do think that educating in part will probably have to be done by larger companies who have all that liquid capital to give to it. Well, we can't forget that advertising is marketing. Yes. Uh, advertising is advertising could be education, right? There's no reason why advertising, you know, isn't. People have taken advertising to mean not uh, to be almost the opposite, almost. But well, and because of that, advertising has almost become um, empty. Right. Yeah, and, and and you see people are shifting now almost to to you see larger companies shifting back to sort of be trying to be create create content. Rather than actually, uh, rather than you know, do the uh, the normal sort of hey, my product is great because it's great thing. They're like, I know I'm actually going to create real content uh, that is about something that might get shared because of the content is good, and then use that. And so there's definitely like an opportunity now. It's still like you know whether you believe uh, advertising versus the Trump White House. I think it's like fifty fifty at this point. But um, you know, it's 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 it, it is there's systems in place for them to do it. I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, do either of our other two guests have any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I guess it depends on uh, to what extent advertising manipulates or educates. So there's a big difference there. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think it's yeah, and I think advertising sort of I think started as education. The idea of it was we will explain to people why this thing is good, um, and then very quickly became we will just tell people it's good and make up weird reasons why, and then we and then and, and people are slowly as we've gone along. Like the the trust in in corporations has decreased so much that you're 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 now basically no one like I don't know people who take advertising seriously, but there must be someone because it works still. Well, I think we're now at a spot where it's like, well, everyone knows everyone's so cynical that they know where they assume we're lying to them, so we might as well. <laughs> <laughs> like you know, if it's a if I'm going to be charged, if my mom's going to scream at me for stealing a cookie, I might as well eat the damn cookie. Right. right. Yeah. Uh, well, and I guess that sort of explains. You know, I think that leads back to something like some some brands have successfully managed to. To be honest enough that they are then you know they've they've made themselves believable again mm-hmm. uh you know i think to some extent patagonia is a good example of that patagonia or someone like you know manicum co-op uh or you know or these smaller places even you know when you like people still go into small mom and pop stores and say what is good uh and then they and then and, and then are educated by the person right. um but uh, yeah i think it's to some extent you, you don't you don't trust it all right. So my my second question, and and once again, this one will be very like, obvious where this was inspired by. But we were talking about obviously the bombing of pipelines earlier, and uh, um, I don't have to say obviously this is something we don't agree with. So I want to I want to cl- very clarify. I'm going to be very very clear about my question before I ask it. So one of the things that the the play was about, and that whole story is about, because I've seen other films and I've read other things about that story, is that you know for better or worse, change happened. Right? It was an event. We're telling stories about it to this day. It created it was a, you know regardless in a value neutral sort of way. It had a very big impact on the sort of Canadian psyche and on and on Canadian history and and on to a degree indirectly policy, right? And public policy and and attitudes towards various people and whatnot. So it had a big impact. But you know we're now in 2017 where there's you know there's been 46 bombings this week and the two different people got 
shot from this and that. And Trump said this this week. And I just I, I wonder if it made me wonder if is it even possible? Like, so for say, for instance, that later this afternoon and I and I hope to goodness this doesn't happen. But just hypothetically, let's say later this afternoon, somebody did bob off pipeline. Uh, I, you know, I, I imagine happening, you know, there'd be a bunch of headlines for a couple of weeks and they'd lock them up, they'd throw away the key and we'd be up back onto something else. Like, I'm, I'm wondering, is it even possible, not is the act good, but it is even possible for there to be a single action, whether it's a protest or something violent or whatever, that could have that type of impact anymore? Or are those days over? I open it up. Well, there was a there was a bombing. And I here's an example. During our rehearsal for the play, there was a bombing that happened, I think, in Alberta, but I couldn't tell you. So <laughs> because <laughs> it wasn't in the mainstream news, really, or if, if it was, it was a blip. It was just another sort of like this bombing that we're talking about in the play is not just in the past. Like this stuff is has continued to happen. It, it has continued to happen regularly. And we depict one instance of it happening, but it, it happens a lot. Actually, one of the one of the bombings was ac- executed by the RCMP. They bombed their own shed and framed it as a, an act of terror by the Ludwig family. And they did it themselves in order to be able to sort of raise alarms about the family and call it terrorism. So I just I feel like I feel like those sorts of events like vandalism or terrorism or whatever you different people want to call them um, are being downplayed, I think, uh, significantly because they kind of maybe work. I from from what I from my understanding um, through the grapevine is that that family and their farm is in that area have the least amount of wells around them. Like it is not worth the while of those oil and gas companies to build anywhere near them because they know the wells will be vandalized. So they don't. Yeah. And to echo Sarah, I just wanted to add that I think it's a very important question to ask who commits the violence, because of course we want to disavow violence. But if you look at what really happens when people demonstrate and protest and they set out to be completely peaceful a lot of them are arrested. A lot of them are manhandled and injured in some way, whether emotionally, psychologically, or physically. Um, you know, so you have to ask the question, who actually commits the violence? At whom is the violence directed? So to think of protesters as automatically being linked to uh, committing violent acts, sometimes these things happen. But I think we need to also focus on that often they are the recipients of violence by the authorities. Well, I, I, just jumping there to Chris quickly, I think that you can go one step further than that um, and say that to some extent there's uh, you know our understanding of, of violence, like whether or not so, so there's the sort of the, what we what the, everyone would sort of see as violence, which is, is that you know an act of an act of sabotage or terror or or whatever, uh, and then you have sort of the protesters themselves directly being say you know uh, you know see what you saw at Standing Rock in to level of which that they were you know they were one hundred peaceful protesters and they were being sprayed with water in negative fifteen degrees, um, and 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 there's that type of violence. But then there's a third, which I think gets even which is even the perhaps the most insidious, uh, and perhaps to tie both these conversations together, which is the which is the uh, um, the the violence of uh, uh, inherent to our society at all. You know, I am wearing a shirt that almost certainly was is like actually I got it secondhand, but almost certainly was originally built. It was was originally put together in a in a state of what many people would see as violence. Uh, I'm going to go back and work on my computer, which definitely includes cobalt, which was probably mined by it, by, by by children. Um, and and I think there's a we are very very good as a society of ignoring uh, and of and of, and of, of 
of, of sort of not shining a light on the on the violence that we inherently embody uh, every day. Um, and, and 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 then so and so when one thing happens that's sort of outside of our norm, that's sort of is like oh no, they're the violent ones over there. And it's like you know more people were injured in the making of the shirt on your back than the than the, the time that pipeline got busted. And just to add to that. Um we the the line that recently down the run, went down the runway we had a lot of graphic t-shirts that were you know we softened a couple of them for sure but one of the things i really wanted to say were oil fields or farm fields you choose because essentially that's the choice are you choosing polyesters or are you choosing natural fibers so yes we protest these pipelines but are we willing to give up all of the all of the byproducts that we so de- you know quietly consume on a day to day level. Um, I don't think the answer is yes. And, and are we able to give them up? Are we right. do we even have the opportunity to choose to give them up? Do we? Yeah. Are there options available to us? Can we afford them? Are they? Yeah. I think a lot of a lot of the things that need to happen are we we just can't because the infrastructure isn't there or, or because the system is set against that happening. Sure. I mean, people oftentimes ask me like, well, what's what's the one thing I can do that, to disrupt this? And it's, you know, they're like, I can't afford, you know, this type of fashion. I was like, okay, stop buying things. Just period. Make do with what you have for as long as you have. And then when you need something, think about it. And make sure you ask your friends, you know, and have a clothing swap with them before you start going any further. You know, I think we're so attached to things and that we need things that we actually really don't need as much as we think. In, right. yeah. Oh, no, I was going to say we're down to uh, about two and a half minutes. I had, one, I had two more questions. I have one. I, hopefully we can spitball it. So maybe we can go rapid fire here because the last one I wanted to ask you was, uh, um, you know, we're, we we stayed away from it. But, of course, we're we're putting currently uh, putting all dystopian writers out of work right now. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, everyone a personal question. Maybe we'll leave Stefan for last in case we run out of time. Let's start uh, over at the other end uh, with Sarah. What are you personally doing to maintain your sanity right now? Oh, goodness. Um <laughs> This play, which is, you know, 85 minutes of of going through this horrible experience with my family on stage, is actually a break. It's a relief. I I love it. (laughs) Um, I just, I I feel like school, being in school for environmental studies is so hard. Like Like reading and researching about everything that's happening in the world is just so overwhelming. And I think that's a problem. And so if I can find ways to just find some hope or some find where is the hope and where is the love that's that's all i can really do and yeah christina well i've actually started uh putting together some uh some journalistic pieces some documentaries and interviews um related to the resistance to trump and uh a colleague of mine and i uh we've started a youtube channel as we see it so we've got one one story up already and we're working on a series of other ones so that's what i'm doing in terms of you know highlighting the resistance that is out there and using my journalistic um, background and that makes me feel good makes me feel like yes i can make a difference and i think it's important to educate people all right, and I'm afraid we are actually out of time. <laughs> Peggy Sue, if you can stick around, we're going to do the bonus show because I'm going to talk. I'm going to talk about my answer and, and Stefan as well off air. So I do apologize. We we have to cut it right there, but uh, we're going to continue that conversation as well as some of my uh, news shenanigans. We'll be keeping on in the bonus show. So thank you very much for listening. Uh, take care. You're listening to the Green Majority. Of course, check out greenmajority.ca for all the show links. And take care. Have a good Green Week.